The series is Living in Hope, exploring 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the Church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. I heard an interview with a Hamas leader during the week, And he said, first, we are coming for the Jews, and next, we are coming for the Christians around the world, the worldwide. How can you stand when you face severe opposition, as David has talked about, perhaps even death? Paul Apple asks, How have you been persecuted this week, this past week? What do you know about being persecuted by unbelievers because of your proclamation of the gospel and your godly living? How have you shared in the sufferings of Christ and thus come to a fuller experience of the power of his resurrection working in and through you? He notes that church historians report that Christians, more Christians have been persecuted for their faith in this past century than in all the prior centuries of church history combined. The world's population is bigger, the church's population is bigger. That is remarkable to consider, especially since it seems so foreign, again as David referred to, to our experience. The Apostle Paul was very familiar with persecution. It was part of his everyday experience. Before salvation, Saul had led the charge against believers. Then the Lord called him with this charge that he gave to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. And you remember Ananias was a bit nervous about being sent to Saul, the persecutor, to bear my name for the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer 
for my name's sake. Saul, in Hebrew Shaul, became Paul. It was a complete change of direction. The persecutor of believers to persecuted proclaimer of the gospel. And Paul is writing to the Thessalonians because he and the missionary team have been greatly concerned as to how this fledgling flock were going in the face of the persecution that had caused Paul and Silas to have to move on and the continued opposition that followed. Were they discouraged? Were they in danger of turning back? When we get to chapter 3, we find that because of his concern for them, he had sent Timothy back to see how they were getting on. How can one stand firm in the face of opposition, particularly severe opposition? Well, Psalm 1 gives us a little bit of a clue that fits very much with the passage we're going to look at today. And by the way, this is a four verses in this passage, although you saw it in broken down a bit more on the screen. But man, those four verses are so full that I could only do two this morning. So if you're here, if you want to follow the rest of the message, you'll have to come back next week, right? Okay, but... We're going to look at the first two parts, the positive parts, and then 15 and 16, the negative. But Psalm 1, verses 1 to 6. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. The main idea that we're going to see in this passage is a contrast of two different responses to God's truth. Verses 13 and 14, which we look at today, have the first response, which can be summarized in one word, faith. And then verses 15 and 16 will give us the second response, which is rejection of God's word. And by the way, even though it refers to Jews, realize that it's not referring to all Jews, it's referring to those Jews who had rejected the word and actively persecuted the church. Yes, the nation is blind, as Paul brings out for us in, uh, in, in the book of Romans, but he prays that their eyes would be open, and as we've shared many times, there's a growing messianic work. In fact, as we talk about the things uh, in the battles to free uh, the various southern areas of Israel from the Hamas terrorists, two Messianic believers have been killed so far, giving their lives as a service to, uh, to rescue one a lieutenant colonel and one a, sar- a gunnery sergeant. Put their lives on the line. But realise that also in the army of Israel today, there are also Muslims putting their life on the lawn. Uh, on the line as well. So it's, it's a much more complex picture than most people realise. 
and there are Arabs and Christians and Muslims and Jews serving for the defence of that nation. But first what we're going to see is in verse 13, they were receiving the word. Paul returns to the theme of thanksgiving like chapter 1, and Paul, Silas and Timothy are exceedingly pleased with what God was doing. Receptive. Not all people are receptive when you go to share the gospel with them. <laughs> Some people are quite, uh, get quite antsy, I think is, a, is a, a, ter- a colloquial term people use, get quite upset, quite indignant, quite angry. Uh, and that's certainly what happened with many of the Jews in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. He says that he's constantly or without ceasing uh, giving thanks for them. It means uninterruptedly, constantly, incessantly, continually. They were constantly in his thoughts and prayers. Bruce Hertz asked this this question, do you have a brother or sister in Christ whom you cannot seem to get off your mind, prayerfully speaking? Then thank God for them. The Lord's bringing them to your heart and mind. Give thanks to God. In 1 Thessalonians 1-2, we read, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And we looked at that in that very first message in this passage. In Romans 1-9, and there are more passages of this, we're not going to exhaust that, but Romans 1-9, Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you to the Roman believers in Rome. Now, the believers in Thessalonica heard the word of God from Paul and Silas. We read in Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, just remember, some people think he was only there for two weeks, three Sabbaths, two weeks, the, the weeks in between. But it seems that he was likely quite a lot longer, perhaps uh, uh, several months, perhaps up to around four months, some have suggested. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Their preaching was focused on Jesus being the promised Messiah. The one whom the Old Testament foretold as needing to suffer and rise from the dead. And that's what they were preaching. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Thessalonians' immediate response to that truth was to receive it. The word is paralambano. They they didn't just hear it but they welcomed it with open arms. We see Jesus using this phrase in John 14, 3. He says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So when they heard the word of God, they welcomed it, they received it in that sense. In contrast, in John 1, 11, it says he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now you notice the thanks is not given to thanks, but thanks is given to God. 
It's only appropriate that their thanksgiving was directed to God because it was his good news, it's the gospel of God that the hearers responded to through the gracious and efficacious working of his Holy Spirit. It is God's message and the missionaries were only the messengers. Not only did they receive it, but they were accepting it, and it's a different word here, decamai. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Jesus used decamai in several ways. Here in Matthew 18, 15, he says of the uh, receiving children... And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. It's, it, it was translated in the English as receives, like the previous word was, paralambano, but this is decamai. Uh, of faithful preachers of the gospel, when he sends out the disciples, he says in Matthew 10, 14, whoever does not receive you, or heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. As they were being sent around the Jewish areas, uh, the reception that they got was, was to be marked. If they were rejected, they were to shake the dust off their It's a very symbolic act. The Thessalonian believers had welcomed the message by listening... But then they received or accepted that truth by believing it and embracing it with their whole heart. There's a website called the Explaining the Bible, and I can't find who the author is, but I like the way he put it. He says, they weren't like the rocky soil in Jesus' parable of the seeds and the soils. You remember in Luke 8, 13, he says, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And we, we might sit there and say, hey, praise the Lord, another one saved. But he says, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The rocky soil is represented as immediately taking in and receiving the seed of God's word, and it even does so with joy, as the Thessalonians did. But when that soil, that human heart, faces opposition and affliction and trials for Jesus' sake, it falls away, it apostatizes. That's not how the Thessalonians responded to, to God's truth. Like those in Berea, we read in Acts 17, 11, when Paul was sent out from Thessalonica, uh, he goes on to Berea and it says, now these, that's these Jews, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They received it. The Thessalonian believers, in contrast to the other Jews, uh, and many of these, of course, were, were Gentiles, largely Gentiles, they received it. They had great joy over it. They were even afflicted because of it, and yet they stood fast. Why? Because they didn't receive this word as if it was just a mere word from mortal men, like a self-help book. They received the word from Paul and Silas as if it were a message straight from God himself. 
As Bruce Hurt says, how important is it for a church to receive the word, not as the word of men, but as the authoritative, supernatural word of God? Preaching is not merely talking about God, but in a sense, is God himself working through the message and the personality of the preacher confronting men and bringing them to himself. In 2 Corinthians, thinking of that, Paul says that not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Why? Because it's his word. And it's his truth we are to proclaim. Sadly, we hear from many places around that much preaching is not the word of God today, but whatever occurs to the minds of the preacher that's going on and he thinks perhaps he ought to speak on. But we are to proclaim the truths of God's words. As Grant Richardson says, the Thessalonians' attitude to God's word made them one of the most outstanding churches in the first century. In 2 Timothy 3.16, speaking of scripture and of God's word, Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In other words, God's word speaks to the whole of life. It it is the authority, it is the power by which we stand. A former, uh, uh, well, Australian who passed it in America, but uh, uh, Will Johnson, um, his faith was nearly destroyed by liberal theology, and then uh, Chapman, God sent to Australia in those, this is in the 1800s, sent to Australia Wilbur Chapman, and uh, he took him aside and reaffirmed him in the Word and sent him to Moody Bible College. And Will Johnson says this, this astounding claim cannot be made by any other book in the world. To the sceptics of his day, Jesus flung out this ringing challenge in John 5.39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you see, the picture here in Thessalonians is one of putting out the welcome mat for God's word of truth as one would a good friend or guest and inviting entry into one's house. It pictures assenting, one assenting to, the, to God's word of truth. The Thessalonians not only heard and intellectually understood the message, but also appropriated it and welcomed it into their hearts. You know, we're just going through Christianity Explained uh, during the week, and one of the final lessons in, in that study uh, has an illustration and, uh, of the great French... Um, tightrope worker, walker, Charles Blondin. His name really was Jean-Francois Gravelet, but we know him as Charles Blondin, his stage name. He was walking the tightrope over Niagara Falls, as you see there, did it nearly 300 times, and did it in many strange and different ways. Uh, uh, There's one photo I saw of him, uh, or drawing of him taking a Uh, daguerreotype camera, and if you know anything about the history of cameras, this is the late 1800s, they were big, bulky things that were on a tripod, and he took it, and he took it off his back, and placed it, and took a photograph of the crowd. (laughs) 
Another time, he took food, he took a, a wheelbarrow over. Other times, he took uh, 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 a stove and cooked, and then dropped the food down to the boat below. He brought up a, 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 a glass, a, a bottle of wine at one stage from the boat below, and, and sat there and drank it. Okay, he, he's very accomplished. He did this many times without, without any safety gear. Uh, you can just see in some of these photos the, the, the uh, guide wires that were holding the rope taut. But in the middle there was a slack part that, was, uh, that dipped because it didn't have the taut support. And he walked through there. Anyway, one day you see him there with a the man on his back. But another day, he took the wheelbarrow across, and, and it's reputed that he said to the crowd, do you believe that I can take a man across and bring him back safely across the, the Niagara Falls? And the crowd apparently turned out and yes, we believe. <laughs> and then he turned to one of the first people that was in the front of that crowd and said, would you get in? <laughs> they believed but they weren't prepared to trust him. <laughs> They'd seen him do it. As Warren Wearsby says, the way a Christian treats his Bible shows how he regards Jesus Christ. He is the living word, and the Bible is the written word, but in essence they are the same. Both are bread, light, and truth. Yeah, there are various scriptures you can, you can look at there, Paul. Jesus said to those of his day, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Whenever you see that double emphasis, Lord, Lord, and in Matthew 7, he says, they'll say to me, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, we even cast out demons in your name, and he said, depart from me, for I never knew you. That's the legalist trying to impress God. I've done enough to earn my way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. And of course he talks about the man who builds his house on solid rock. In Luke 8, 21, he says uh, to them, they came and said, your mother and brothers and sisters are, are waiting outside. And he says to them, uh, uh, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and, what's the and? Do it. Uh, obedience. You see, saving faith is not head knowledge. It's not just a mental conviction and intellectual ascent. Saving faith is believing in Jesus, who and what he is, that he is the saviour and lord of life. Saving faith involves commitment, the commitment of a man's total being and life to Jesus Christ. Bruce Hurt brings it out this way, faith is forsaking all I trust him. That's the difference between saying, do, I, do you believe I can do this? Yes. Will you step into the barrow and place your whole trust in me? The 
There's a contrast in this and in John 2, 22 to 25, it says, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Now, that's critical. Just like the crowd that watched Blondin do it, they believed, they saw it. But it goes on, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Their belief was in the miraculous, not in trusting the one who did the miracles. They just wanted sensation. We live in an age that is looking to sensation. Guess where it's going, folks? And in fact, if you look at the developments in holograms and we can see the path where, where the Antichrist is going to deceive the world visually. And they say, yes. You know, you go to some places today and in Dubai, apparently they have these holograms of whales jumping out of the water and they look so real. I don't know how they do it. I haven't quite worked that technology out. Of, they're very different to the early days of holograms, which you could tell were just artificial. Now they look so convincingly real. But you see, we live in an age that wants sensation, not transformation. Oh, sorry. I didn't realise I hadn't clicked 25 on. But you see, in the Thessalonian believers... They not only had welcomed it and accepted it, but it was effective in their life. He says in verse 13, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now there's an ambiguity as to what which is referring to. Is it referring to God's word or God himself? In either case, though, ultimately it's God who's working. And he's working in the lives of believers through his word. The gospel message works in those who truly believe. God works into you the willingness and the ability to do what pleases him, not, not to earn your salvation, but because he's at work in you, for it is God who is at work in you, in Philippians 2.13, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He changes your mind. He changes your direction and he changes what you do because it's his work in you. John MacArthur notes the work of God's, uh, the work of God's work and, and he has verses for each of these references but uh, and I should have just put them popping up as I, as I say them. The work of God's work includes saving, obviously, teaching and training, guiding counselling, reviving, restoring, warning and rewarding, nourishing, judging, sanctifying, freeing, enriching, protecting, strengthening, making wise, rejoicing the heart and prospering. That's what the Word of God can and is doing in your life if you're truly His. 
Paul prays for the Ephesian believers in this way. He says, Now to him who is able to do more abundantly above all that we ask or even think, or some translations put the word even in, according to the power that works within us. What is that power? It's the word of God at work in us. This the Bible, and I haven't got a physical copy because it's here on the computer, but the Bible you hold in your hands is full of real and living power. It's the words. Its words are transforming lives all over the world every day. And, you know, I give thanks for some of the testimonies I've seen during the week coming from former jihadists whose lives have been totally transformed and changed around. One man who was a, a soldier uh, uh, with Hezbollah, and, and he was being interviewed, I think it was by Joel... Uh, uh, yeah, I mentioned him before and I've just forgotten now, but it'll come back. Uh, and he was being interviewed and he says, what we need to pray at this time for both Palestinians and Arabs and Jews is for their eyes to be opened, to see, to see the Lord Jesus ultimately, to see what's truly going on. Another was a uh, aunt being interviewed by ITV4 and, and the biases in the media that are very anti-Israel because look what they're doing to Gaza and so on. And it's a, it's a difficult thing. But it, as the man, this man said, it's war and it's not pretty. But he pointed out he was the son of a Hamas, one of the major Hamas leaders. And he was in an Israeli prison and he sought initially to be a double agent. But while he was undergoing that process, he was sought to work for Hamas while appearing to work for Israel. But he became, I don't know whether he became a believer, that testimony didn't come out, but he says, you know, I saw the brutality of what they were doing to our own people. And he said, and then I saw Israel, and he said, Israel's not just a nation of Jews. It's a mixed nation. It's a democratic nation. There are Arabs and Jews. There are Muslims. And he said, there are Muslims in the IDF. There are Christians in the IDF. There are Jews in the IDF. And, and the, thing, the point he brought out was that uh, I just have to stand against the evil. And they said to him, well, doesn't that make you a traitor to your people? And he says, to my father's vision and view of the world, yes, I'm a traitor. But to the Palestinian people, no, I'm not. I have to work for the freedom of those people. And, and you could tell the... Uh, it, the interviewer was trying to trick him up and he just couldn't. You see, the word of God is to change us. What other book can you pick up, believe it, and have it change you so radically and in such holy and pure ways? There's nothing like it because no other book is breathed out by God and does the spiritual work in those who believe it. Only God's word, the Bible, does that. Another jihadist that I saw um, had been raised on hatred. 
and he was Iranian. And as many Muslims do that come to faith, he received visions and he thought he was going crazy when he got the first vision. So the next night he had the same vision repeated again. And he said, I began to realize we were raised in hate. But when I came to see who this person that kept appearing to me was, and it was Jesus, he said, I've discovered love. I've discovered such a freedom. It's transformed him. Now, the visions led to the reading of the word. In fact, he wanted to read the word. He cries out to God, and he's still thinking Allah, but he's in that transition process of understanding that the real God is different to the Allah that he was taught about. And he said one of the key things is, for instance, that Allah in Islam never visits man. But as he came to get the visions and began to desire to see the true God, he began to see that God had visited and sent his son. And he came, he began to, to, to want to know what the Bible said. He'd read the Quran many times regularly. He was devout. He was, he, he was set apart uh, to be a leader. And so he, he calls out to God and says, look, can you get me a Bible? And the next morning in the prison, no one's heard this as far as we know. It was just a prayer between him and God a cry of the heart, and the next morning an Indian man comes to him and brings him a Bible and he says, here is the book you were wanting. Who does that? The God of the book. And you notice he, the, 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 the power of the word of God was at work in who? In you who believe. Hebrews 4.2 says, for indeed we have, a, we have good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is faith. And it's a work of God, it's a gift of God. Charles Spurgeon, uh, you'll remember, uh, from the 1850s, and a, a powerful preacher uh, in the days before megachurches, but he had a, a, the, the tabernacle in London, had 5,000 people attending. And in those days, you didn't have sound systems, you didn't have these things. would be kind of cool. <laughs> and I, I have actually spoken in churches that were built before the sound age, and Echo beautifully. <laughs> anyway, he was uh, testing in an auditorium in which he was to speak that evening and stepping into the pulpit, he loudly proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Satisfied with the acoustics, he left and went his, uh, his way. Unknown to him, there were two men working in the rasters of that large auditorium. Neither was a Christian, neither a believer, and one of the men was pricked in his conscience by that short verse that Sir Spurgeon had quoted and became a believer later that day. Didn't get the full sermon, he just got that one phrase, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, Spurgeon tells the story of how he was converted when he was 16. 
he was trying to make it to church and it was snowy and he ended up in a little Methodist church and he was the only one and the lay preacher was there and he said just one word that spoke to me was, look, look. <laughs> the word of God is powerful and transforming. And we see how it transformed. Uh, they were replicating the faithful. Paul commends the Thessalonians for imitating the Judean churches and enduring persecution from their own countrymen who were hostile to the gospel. Says they were imitating. We saw that in chapter one. Uh, for you, brethren, became imitators, mimites, mimics uh, of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. In chapter one, he had said that Thessalonians were imitating him and the Lord in, in verse six, chapter one, verse six. And now he speaks of them imitating other churches. Church Christians are to imitate Christ, but they are also to learn to how to follow Christ from observing how other Christians imitate Christ for those that are truly walking by faith. An African chief once said, a good example is the tallest kind of preaching. Did you get that? A good example is the tallest kind of preaching. You may never be a preacher. And we trust that you are sharing the word of God. You're proclaiming it not from a pulpit, but your good example goes before the words that you share. Lawrence Richard writes that mimitase is a call to reproduce in our own way of life those godly qualities that result from salvation and that we see in others. The idea is intimately linked with the thought that teachers and leaders ought to be clear living example, clear living examples of the practical implications of commitment to Jesus. James Baldwin, an older commentator, notes, children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. They must, they have no other models. They imitated the churches, and the way they did was standing firm in suffering. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. The, the, the church in Judea was a Jewish church before the gospel was sending out into the furthermost parts. And they came under attack from their brothers, their fellow Jews. And just like them, the Thessalonian believers were persecuted for Christ's sake. In 2 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. You see, their suffering was not unique. That's just how the believing Jews in Judea were treated by the unbelieving Jews who rejected their Messiah. Now, it was speaking of Testament saints, but Hebrews 10.32, and, and, and David spoke from there before. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Jewish persecution was evident at the founding of the Thessalonian church when synagogue leaders, out of jealousy, raised a rabble to attack Paul. 
This mob failed to catch Paul, but they ransacked the house of Jason, dragging him and other Christians, this is in Acts 17, before the city authorities. Even after Paul and his company slipped away from Thessalonica to Berea, Thessalonian Jews pursued Paul, forcing him to leave the province of Macedonia altogether. And it seems likely that such opponents of the gospel in Thessalonica, not content with Paul's dismissal, would have continued to oppose the child Paul left behind. Now, persecution is discouraging, especially when it comes to coming from your own people. When you take a stand for Christ, you may face opposition, disapproval and ridicule from your neighbours, friends and even family members and sometimes the hardest is when you get it from your own family. The resistance. This similarity in how believers tend to be treated by their lost peers is a sign of genuine faith on the part of both the imitators and the ones being imitated. And it's explaining the Bible notes, for some of us, trusting Christ has caused divisions in your broader family and has led to some perhaps lighter forms of persecution. Maybe old friends you once associated with now want nothing to do with you. To the extent that God would have you to suffer for Christ's name, you are to count yourself blessed. Whatever suffering and persecution you face for Christ will only show that you are a genuine believer. It's not persecution. Some persecution can come from the foolishness of what we do. (laughs) It's not actually suffering for Christ. It's suffering for our foolishness. But when we are standing firm for Christ and we do suffer, it is the result. It isn't just because uh, they reject us. It's because they reject him. As you suffer for Christ, you will join the ranks of those in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Some of whom, uh, as unbelievable, unbelievable as this sounds, even rejected release from torture, Hebrews 11.35 says, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. They stood for They wanted to give witness to the power of God. So all mankind is left with a choice in how we respond to God's truth. Paul and the Thessalonians show us what we too should believe and practice. You're to receive God's truth, to accept it as the very word of God, believe it, and by faith be willing even to suffer for it. James says in James 1, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, the old way of our lives, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. I wonder if persecution came They, I, I remember the, some of the stories from the Soviet Union. On one occasion, um, these uh, security officers turned up at a church with guns aimed and said, stand up all true believers in Jesus. And a number of them stood up. 
those that remained sitting, they said, you can go now. And when they left, they said, we, these were people that were being witnessed to, and they said, we just wanted to know who were true believers because they couldn't trust anyone who wasn't so that we could worship with you. Now, that, that's a positive outcome. It's not always a positive outcome. There are many, and we saw it during ISIS, that were called to denounce their faith in Jesus Christ and they would not. And I remember the, the particularly poignant story of a 12-year-old son saying to his father, don't give in, Dad, before they were beheaded. If suffering to the extent of even of death comes, will you stand? Are you responding by faith? Is the word, power of the word of God truly working in you, transforming you from what you once were, transforming you into the image of the Lord Jesus, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, Love, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, you know the things. Is that the work that is evident in you that shines forth as a witness to the testimony that you proclaim about the good news of Jesus Christ? Are you his? Or are you like the seed that is received and springs up with joy for a time, but when tested, falls away? If you're not sure, I ask for you to plead with God to show you and to reveal himself in, in such a way that you can know that you, as David said before, will respond by faith and that you will see the resurrection and will see the fulfillment of what he does. Let's come before him in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we've had a reminder just this week how the hatred of the Word of God wants to destroy human life. Women and children, grandmothers, slaughtered, some taken into captivity where the terror must just go on and on until either they die or they're released. Father, we do pray for the things going on in Israel that there would be a freeing from the tyranny of hatred. For those that will respond to the opening of their eyes, whether it be initially by visions and then by the word of God. Lord, we just pray for that. But we pray also that you would test our hearts and reveal to us where we stand with you. For those who have truly accepted your word as the word of God, may they be strengthened and encouraged to know that you are. May they see the way that you are working in them. May others affirm to them to encourage them. For Father, we look and we pray that kind of horror and we don't know how we would respond. But we pray that it would be with courage and strength and evidence of the salvation within. 
And for those that don't yet know for certain, we pray that you would reveal to them your truth.